Hello and welcome to Alchemy Radio, where the only thing we ask of you is that you keep an open mind. Our guest today is Dr. Rick Strassman. Rick is currently Clinical Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine. He is also President and Co-Founder of the Cottonwood Research Foundation, which is dedicated to consciousness research. Rick performed the first new human studies with psychedelic drugs in the US in over 20 years. His research involved the powerful naturally occurring compound DMT or dimethyltryptamine. Led to this substance through his earlier study of the pineal gland as a potential biological locus for spiritual experiences, he administered several hundred doses of DMT to approximately 60 volunteers between 1990 and 1995. He wrote about this research in the popular book DMT, The Spirit Molecule, which has sold over 100,000 copies. It also inspired an independent documentary by the same name, picked up by Warner Brothers, distributed in 2011. With three distinguished collaborators, he co-authored Inner Paths to Outer Space, which looks more carefully at the common other worlds experience that volunteers frequently reported during his research. Since 1996, Rick has also been exploring models for the DMT effect, focusing primarily on the Old Testament concept of prophecy. Rick, you're very welcome to Alchemy Radio. How are you? Good. Thanks very much for having me on today, John. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm very excited to have you on because um, I've read many of your works and um, have particular interest in the topics that we're going to cover over the next hour or so. But before we delve in depth into it, give us a little bit about your background and how I suppose you became interested in the field that you eventually chose. Well, um, I was born and raised in, uh, in, um, in Southern California. Um, I was born in the 1950s. Um, and uh, in school, uh, and also on outside of school, um, I was quite interested in chemistry, and in particular, I was interested in fireworks. Um, and as a kid, I learned how to make bombs and you know fireworks in my garage uh, of my parents' house. Um, and I even went to college, starting off as a chemistry major, hoping to uh, start my own fireworks factory uh, once I got out of school. Um, but I was dissuaded from that career, you know, uh, trajectory for a number of reasons um, and uh, was kind of steered into the medical school track. Uh, but, you know, I retained my fascination with bright lights and excitement and loud noises and those kinds of things. And... Uh, you know, in a way, I kind of got the last laugh on everyone by going into psychedelic drug research. Um, you know, specifically, though, uh, in, 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 in terms of doing psychedelic drug research, um, I was going to school in California um, in, uh, in uh, the late you know, 1960s and early 1970s, and uh, this was a time of the introduction of two new technologies that uh, claimed, you know, to reliably alter consciousness in a way that really hadn't been, uh, you know, um, which, hadn't, which hadn't been available to the West up until then. Mm -hmm. One of those um, uh, was the whole, you know, family of the psychedelic drugs, and uh, the other were the practices of meditation coming in from the East. Um, and as as I heard about descriptions of the effects of you know both of those technologies, there seemed to be significant overlap. Uh, you know there were visions, there was ecstasy or terror. You know there were new insights. Um, you know there were intimations of life after death or life without a body, or you know consciousness um, without a body. Um, you know those kinds of things and. Uh, I began to wonder if there might be some underlying common biology that uh, was associated with both of those states. So uh, I started to think about a uh, brain uh, you know, process which could be mediating the effects both of meditation 
end of the psychedelic, you know, drug experience, at least to the extent that they resembled each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I didn't really know about DMT at the time, but I, you know, didn't, uh, you know, uh, I did learn about uh, the pineal gland, um, which is an uh, enigmatic organ in the middle of the mammalian brain, and uh, it had been an object of interest and speculation by esoteric religious, you know, physiology for the centuries. So I started to look into the physiology of the pineal gland. And in uh, the mid-1980s, I ran a study looking at melatonin physiology in humans. Um, I was hoping that melatonin would be psychedelic, in which case I, uh, um, in which case I would have established, um, you know, the existence and the properties of a naturally occurring compound that was made in the body yeah. um, um, with psychedelic properties. You know, this was a study that I performed in the mid-1980s before much was known about melatonin. You know, so we gave melatonin in, you know, various um, experimental situations, and it didn't, you know, turn out to have, uh, um, you know, striking psychedelic effects. Uh, and, and you know, by the time um, I had begun the pineal melatonin work, I had learned about DMT. So was it a disappointment then when you discovered that melatonin didn't actually have the psychedelic properties that you had maybe expected? Yeah, um, it was because, um, you know, otherwise um, I was not that interested in, you know, melatonin. Um, you know, um, I w- um, even though I was interested in the pineal gland, it was from the point of view of it being perhaps a, um, a you know, location of spiritual experience. Um, and when melatonin, you know, which was or still is the compound of primary interest coming from the pineal, mm-hmm. you know, didn't have, you know, much in the way of spiritual properties or you know, psychedelic effects. Yeah, it was a disappointment about uh, the, you know, lack of any psychedelic properties, uh, you know, attached to melatonin. But uh, at, at uh, the same time, I had been learning about the existence of DMT, which is naturally produced in the human body and has got quite profound... Oh, let's see, I think I, I you know, mentioned this, and, and, you know, the couple-year process of getting my permits in order. Yeah, so I think I've answered the question. Okay, great stuff. Well, let's move on to DMT specifically then, Rick. Um, there will be a lot of listeners who will be new to it. So uh, I suppose tell us exactly uh, what, what it is and what it does and everything we should know about DMT. Well, DMT stands for dimethyltryptamine. Uh, it's a relatively simple chemical compound. Uh, it's, uh, I guess you could call it a chemical cousin of serotonin, which is a uh, naturally occurring neurotransmitter in the brain, and it's also uh, closely chemically related to melatonin as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's made in the human body, and it's also made in you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of plants. Uh, and it's a uh, relatively simple chemical synthesis in, in, um, which is involved in its formation. Um, it uh, you know, begins with uh, dietary... Uh, tryptophan, um, which is then metabolized to tryptamine, and then a couple of methyl groups are are then placed on the tryptamine-giving dimethyltryptamine. Um, <clears throat> it uh, was it, it was first uh, uh, you know synthesized uh, in uh, the 1930s, but you know put on the shelf. Um, a Canadian chemist you know synthesized it as. Uh, he was developing a you know series of analogs of you know tryptamine in his uh, studies uh, of certain shrubs, I think, in Canada. Mm. Um, and you know then it you know was you know kind of forgotten and and and, and until um, around uh, you know fifteen twenty years later um, uh, when it um, when it was discovered in uh, Latin American plants that were used for their psychoactive effects. Um, and it was still kind of a curiosity. You know, uh, you know nobody really paid attention to it um, all that much uh, until Stephen Zara in Budapest, um, as a result of not being able you know, to obtain LSD 
for his research in uh, the 1950s because of the existence of the Iron Curtain. Um, he went back to his laboratory and you know, synthesized DMT, and in a you know, series of you know, self experiments, decided or you know determined it was psychoactive, and uh, you know then he you know, began to uh, study it in Europe. Um, and uh, it was still kind of a uh, you know, pharmacological curiosity and, un, until it was discovered um, that rodents you know, made you know, DMT. Uh, it was in their blood, in their urine, and in their spinal fluid. Mm-hmm. You know, so this was the first case of a you know, psychedelic compound uh, you know, being discovered um, in a mammalian body. Um, and you know, then a few years later, it was discovered in human you know, body fluid as well. Um, you know, so that kind of began a flurry of you know DMT, you know DMT research. A lot of people will be familiar with psychedelics, uh, such as I suppose the more obvious ones like LSD or mushrooms or that kind of thing. But uh, DMT is slightly different because we'll move on to the research and the experiments that you've done. But there are there are a lot of links with I suppose the dream state and that maybe our, the REM stage of sleep has some kind of role to play or DMT has a role to play in that stage of sleep. So it's slightly different from maybe LSD or some of the other psychedelics in that sense. Am I correct? Well, we still don't really know the dynamics of endogenous DMT. Uh, you know, if it goes up when you dream or if it goes up or you know down when you die or as as you're approaching death. Um, or if it increases during states of meditation. Uh, you know, the only, you know, good data that we've got so far is, you know, relatively old, um, you know, comes from the UK from the 70s. Um, and it was a study describing that, you know, levels of urinary DMT seem to increase in psychotic individuals when their psychotic symptoms increase. You know, so that's, you know, uh, you know so that's, uh, you know, pathetically enough is... Uh, you know the only data that we you know can really kind of hang our hats on in in terms of you know when you know DMT goes up or down in uh, in, in in human beings um, you know there's some animal data uh, which indicates that it increases during stress um, and it's increase and it also exists at birth you know but it, um, you know the human data uh, still are quite you know uh, they're quite meager and you know that's as a result of the very low concentrations of DMT that occur mm-hmm. in the blood and urine and spinal fluid. Uh, you know the concentrations are in 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 the range of a billionth of a gram per milliliter, um, and um, uh, <clears throat> and uh, the kind of technology required in order you know to measure concentrations that low are are. Um, you know, they're quite demanding, quite expensive. Uh, but, you know, despite that, uh, a colleague of mine at Louisiana State University has developed a new state-of-the-art, you know, super, you know, methodology, um, which is able, you know, to measure concentrations um, which occur at, you know, at, uh, at those low levels. You know, um, one thing that's turning out to be the case is... Uh, is you know that the concentrations of of the metabolite of DMT are more plentiful than you know DMT itself uh, in you know certain you know, circumstances. Mm-hmm. So um, it you know could be that uh, you know the questions uh, which you know people are interested in regarding DMT's role in dreams and meditation and psychosis those sort of things. Uh, you know, maybe more accurately answered by, you know, looking at levels of the DMT metabolite rather than of the DMT itself. I see. And a lot of data, I suppose you could maybe call it more esoteric data or more spiritual data um, that you delved into, of course, is your famous five-year experiment in the University of New Mexico School of Medicine. Uh, What can you tell us about that or tell us about that, I suppose, in some detail because it's absolutely fascinating, Rick. Well, uh, let's see. I'm trying to think if I answered the questions about DMT itself. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose you know the one you know last piece is you know the mechanisms by which you know DMT works. Um, it's structurally related to you know serotonin, and it you know seems to activate a lot of you know the same receptors that serotonin does as well. Um, and it, there are plentiful amounts of those receptors in parts of the brain that you would expect. Um, you know, the visual cortex, the emotional brain, 
uh, you know, the frontal lobes, um, those kinds of things. Uh, you know, so, um, well, and as well, uh, the last few years, um, there's been some increasing interest in the effect of DMT on what's called the sigma receptor, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, seems to be involved in, you know, pain uh, perception, also, you know, consciousness regulation as well, but that's, you know, kind of new data just the last year or two. Um, well, okay, so in terms of my study, uh, we began in the end of 1990 and, you know, finished up in uh, the fall of So we're talking about an experience of maybe just minutes rather than hours, as can be often the case with certain other psychedelics. Yes. um, Well, you know, in uh, like on the street, as it were, you know, people smoke DMT. uh, You know, but we really couldn't, you know, uh, do a a smoking study like that on a clinical research ward. Uh, you know, because of you know the unknown toxicity of smoke DMT, mm-hmm. and also people cough, and you know they may not get all of it in in uh, their lungs. Um, yeah, you know, so as uh, a well, uh, you know, so we gave the drug intravenously instead um, as a solution to uh, you know getting it all in. Um, if you swallow DMT, uh, you know, by itself, it's orally inactive. Um, you know, that's the result of an enzyme in the gut that breaks it down quite quickly. Nice. You know, so that's the reason that it's smoked. Um, and, and, you know, as a result of, of, of you know, the technical and, you know, uh, the medical issues uh, occurring with smoking anything, um, we decided to go the intravenous route. And in, in, in comparing the smoked route with the intravenous route, you know, there were a couple of volunteers who had previously smoke DMT, and, you know, they described the intravenous route as uh, perhaps slightly, you know, quicker, but still, you know, uh, within the ballpark of, you know, the normal time course. Yeah, you know, so when you give intravenous DMT, uh, you know, the effects begin within a few heartbeats, actually. Oh, really? Um, wow. Yes, and uh, they peak within about a minute or two, and then, you know, people start coming down at around, uh, uh, you know, the five-minute point. And, you know, they can start to speak at the, you know, 15-minute, you know, point or, or, um, or thereabouts, but they're still um, quite intoxicated. Uh, you know, nevertheless, though, um, within a half hour or, uh, you know, 40 minutes, uh, you know, they feel quite normal and are able, you know, to drink tea and carry on a conversation and answer the questionnaire that I gave them. You know, so we would spend another half hour or an hour, you know, discussing what their experience was like. Uh, you know, so in that first protocol, we gave uh, 12, you know, people uh, a low dose, a high dose, and two in-between doses of DMT. And, uh, you know, we looked at all of the variables that I mentioned. And what kind of reactions were you getting then from people? Because it was quite a long, um, long drawn-out study, five years, and I think approximately 400 doses. Am I right? To 60 people. 
Yeah, yeah, we gave, uh, you know, uh, well, um, so those, you know, 400 doses include small, medium, and large doses. Yeah, and it was around 60 volunteers. Um, I only studied experienced hallucinogen users because I was interested in them being able to give as accurate and careful a description of their responses as possible. Mm -hmm. And also, um, you know, I was concerned about informed consent. You really, you know, you can't give an... well, um, you really are are unable to obtain, you know, f- you know, fully in f- informed consent um, in this kind of research in people that don't have previous experience with these kinds of drugs. Yes. Um, and also, I I was you know thinking that experienced users would be able to manage, you know, some of the you know, um, yeah, well, you know, they would be less you know likely to panic. Um, you know, as a result of, you know, the suddenness of the effect and also, you know, the rather daunting clinical environment. Um, yeah, and uh, I didn't and uh, I didn't actually, you know, do any kind of uh, any kind of treatment per se. It was a group of normal volunteers, you know, so I screened out anybody with any significant, you know, problems with depression or anxiety, psychosis. Um, you know, out of control, you know, marijuana or, 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 you know, cocaine use, those kinds of things. Um, yeah, you know, so the, uh, response to the highest, you know, doses were the most interesting. And, uh, I guess if, you know, one were to characterize it, you know, typical high dose effect, uh, as I mentioned, you know, the effects began quite quickly. Um, and, uh, the first thing that people would notice would be a you know kind of buzzing in their ears or a mm-hmm. you know sound uh like a high pitched you know high frequency sound um and also a you know tingling of their skin and a building up of an internal pressure um in their entire bodies you know so that combination of effects you know people described as a rush uh, you know kind of like if you're on a roller coaster and you're you know and you're kind of dropping real quickly yeah um any intense energetic you know sense of movement and pressure um and you know so that would build up over the space of 10 15 30 seconds and you know then usually you know people would describe that their consciousness you know left their body just because you know their body uh was unable to contain the intensity of of the energy which, uh, you know, resulted, uh, you know, from the DMT injection. Interesting. Um, and was there much lucidity yeah. described or was it almost like a dream state? Well, you know, not really, uh, even though, you know, from, you know, listening, uh, you know, to the description, it, you know, could be compared to a dream state. You know, but my volunteers were quite clear that, you know, this was not a dream or didn't, re- you know, didn't resemble uh, dream state. Um, it was more, you know, um, it was more consistently, you know, real, uh, you know, than a dream state. You know, most people, um, either if they're dreaming or, you know, they're lucid dreaming, they're able, you know, uh, you know, to distinguish, um, you know, the, uh, the fact that they are dreaming. Um, and, you know, the volunteers in the DMT study, uh, you know, they made a point um, I'm either as a result of my questioning them mm-hmm. or, you know, in, in an unsolicited manner, you know, saying that it was different than a dream. It, you know, was more real than a dream. Uh, you know, the storyline was different or, you know, the quality of the storyline was different. Um, the, you know, the quality of the interactions, you know, their, you know, their maintenance of a clear, you know, cognitive or, you know, um, uh, you know, well, so they maintained clarity of thinking. Uh, they could still make decisions. You know, they could interact with the contents of uh, the visions in a you know much more coherent manner. You know, than you know than would be the case um, if uh, it were a dream. So let's talk a little bit about, um, I suppose, the interactions that did take place outside of, say, the room or the controlled environment, because you've described it as the spirit molecule, which I find very interesting because it's almost like a paradox in itself, uh, the idea of spirit and something being molecular as well. Um, So obviously there were some very interesting results from the conversations and the experiment. Yeah. uh, Well, in the first few moments, you know, there was a kaleidoscopic display of, of, you know, visual imagery. 
Um, and, you know, people kept their eyes closed, and after a few months of the studies, you know, we decided to place eye shades over people's faces because if, as the effect of the drug was coming on, they opened their eyes, you know, the visions would be overlaid on the on uh, um, on the room itself, which you know could be kind of disorienting. Right. You know, so um, after well, uh, well, uh, you know, so all of the you know visions that um, you know that the volunteers were experiencing were taking place with closed eyes, uh, and oftentimes you know the visions or you know the kaleidoscopic um, imagery would coalesce. And uh, the volunteers would, you know, find themselves in a world of light. Um, and it, the colors were intensely saturated, quite bright, you know, rapidly moving. You know, they were, you know, like after the initial anxiety of the transition, which was quite abrupt, you know, they were ecstatic um, in that state. And they maintained a clear, you know, they maintained a, a, a clear mind. You know, they could kind of look around and wonder, you know, where it was, you know, they had landed. Um, and so oftentimes, too, um, you know, there were recognizable contents within that world of light, uh, you know, furniture, statuary, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the most intriguing part, you know, was their perception of beings, um, you know, sentient, intelligent beings who were conscious of them, interacted with them, expected them sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes they were glad, you know, that the volunteer had stumbled into their space. You know, sometimes they were angry and kind of, you know, shooed them away. Um, you know, so that was the most uh, intriguing and, you know, consistent and, and unexpected finding in, in, you know, some ways. And I suppose I qualified the unexpected part by saying that, you know, before I began the study, um, I interviewed around uh, around 20 people who had smoked, you know, DMT because I was interested in, you know, canvassing, uh, you know, other people's experiences, you know, to know what to expect once my study began. Mm. And almost all of the people I spoke to in that preliminary stage of things described, you know, contact with these beings. But, you know, I just couldn't quite get my head around it and thought, well, okay, I'll just write it down and I'll ask those, you know, questions once the study begins. And even when, you know, the volunteers in my study were describing these kinds of effects, and I wrote them down, you know, dutifully, I still kind of, you know, forgot about them until I was writing the book and reviewing my notes as carefully as I did. You know, so uh, it was a very common phenomenon. Over half of the volunteers probably encountered these kinds of things. Um, yeah, you know, so it was both unexpected and expected at the same time. It, it, it was unexpected because it kind of went against my paradigm, but, yeah. you know, um, it wasn't unexpected because I ought to have expected it based on, you know, uh, you know everything I'd heard. Yeah, and I've, um, I've heard, I suppose, anecdotally of people speak about uh, gaining knowledge while in the altered state with regard to specifically to interactions with these beings. And what did your findings uh, come up with in terms of that? Because... Any kind of cognizant interaction like that would presumably last through once the effects had worn off. Yeah. Um, well, you know, that's an interesting, uh, you know, question is, you know, uh, and it's, um, <clears throat> you know, if, if, it could, if it could be summarized, um, I suppose it would be the question as, as uh, to the meaning and the message of the DMT experience. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, you know, to the extent that the beings transmitted that information, uh, you know, it was not all that, you know, well-developed or, you know, that well-articulated. Um, you know, I think, you know, for the volunteers, you know, uh, to just become aware of the possibility of encountering these kinds of beings was, you know, quite a bit of information to absorb in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um you know, uh, a few volunteers, you know, um, they received some, you know, psychological uh, understanding, you know, some of their problems or, you know, or, um, you know some of their habitual interactions um, and, you know, patterns and those kinds of things. Um, you know, a few of the volunteers, you know, got some insights or some intimations of the beings being interested in our welfare, interested in our um, emotional lives, because, you know, they seem to be 
incarnate or, or you know discarnate uh, you know they didn't have bodies right and and you know because emotions you know tend to reside in the body you know they were you know they were quite interested in 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 uh, in uh, the whole phenomena of emotions um, you know they were kind of looking over us uh, or you know looking out for us you know, the, a few of the volunteers described, you know, a you know, sense of being examined or studied, but, you know, n- you know, nothing like you would expect if uh, those kinds of experiences were, you know, simply a reflection of the clinical research environment. Um, a couple of the volunteers experienced, you know, w- what they, you know, believe occur at the time of death or after death. Um you know, the, uh, there weren't a lot of moral or ethical teachings. Uh, you know, some of the volunteers came back, you know, wanting, you know, to be more peaceful or, or you know, to teach peace. Those uh, were not all that, you know, common. I think, you know, a you know, profound sense of astonishment, uh, but also a, you know, profound, you know, uh, conviction, um, you know, that there are, you know, that there are, uh, ongoing parallel, you know, levels of another, you know, reality going on around us all of the time. Uh, man is an inhabited, you know, alternative level of reality. And that's a really interesting point because so many people who have been on this show and I, I suppose who have written books, thousands and thousands of books, and increasingly so, have spoken about, um, well, the, the ideas of maybe parallel universes or interdimensions and... Um, I suppose, on a quantum level. And it's a world that's really only only opening up to us now because so many of us have been bogged down in a, a supposed five-sense reality for a long time. And you mentioned life and death and near-death experience. And that's something that I find fascinating because could DMT possibly be an explanation for, uh, for example, people who have NDEs, they come back and they explain the experience and so many of them seem to be so similar. Um, could DMT be linked to that or could it maybe be a passageway substance because you also mentioned birth earlier on as we were speaking. Maybe, I don't know, a, a DMT is a transitional portal to and from the existence that we have here on Earth at the moment or our current lives. Well, you know, there have to be some kind of biological things happening during the near-death state. Mm. Um, and, you know, to the extent that the DMT experience, you know, resembles, you know, those which occur, um, you know, as people are approaching death, it makes, you know, sense to propose that there are, you know, similar underlying biological mechanisms. Uh, and, you know, there are, you know, simple studies one could do. You know, you could give DMT to, you know, somebody that's had an NDE and, you know, compare the two effects. Um, or you could, you know, look at levels of DMT as people are dying, um, although we're not quite, you know, there, you know, with the technology, but but still, with, you know, within a year or two, uh, you know, we ought to be able to have established, you know, normal values of DMT. Mm-hmm. And you could then compare them to, you know, concentrations which occur in a dying person. Or you can do those kinds of studies in animals. Um, you know, they're kind of barbaric, but still... Um, uh, uh, well, you can euthanize animals and, you know, look at their DMT, you know, concentrations. Um, yeah, and, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, DMT is a drug. You can study it. You can give it. But at uh, the same time, it's, you know, kind of uh, a bit hot to handle, um, you know, because it's a, it's a reliable, you know, pharmacological method of, you know, putting to the test quite a few theories out there, um, which still have not, you know, the methodology to, you know, to be adequately tested. You know, um, at at the same time, though, you know, there is this compound that you could give to people and reliably induce these uh, outrageous experiences, which could be used to study religious experience, NDEs, you know, the near-death state, mm-hmm. um, you know, psychosis, those kinds of things. But I, I think, you know, one of the things which make, you know, scientists and others reluctant is, you know, because it would be, you know, so, you know, paradigm-shattering that uh, it just is, you know, it's almost, almost like Pandora's box. Uh, 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 um, well, you know, to that effect, you know, last year there was a... a uh, well, there was... Well, um... You know, so there is a research, you know, group at the University of Wisconsin, you know, that's, uh, you know, been looking at uh, the regulation of 
of either the DMT, you know, enzyme, uh, you know, the one that, you know, uh, you know, that completes, you know, the synthesis of DMT, mm-hmm. and also uh, the gene that regulates that enzyme. And, you know, there are high concentrations of the gene uh, of, uh, uh, well, you know, so there are, you know, high concentrations of, um, um, of the enzyme and, you know, high levels of activity of the gene in uh, the retina. You know, and when you start to, you know, think about, oh, you know, is there DMT in the retina? Uh, in which case, you know, that would be, um, you know, you know, kind of putting up for debate or, you know, uh, for careful examination, you know, the basis of our, you know, visual perception of, you know, the so-called outside world. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I think it would just be a bit, you know, you know, too much. Like if, you know, for example, uh, you know, it's you know, turned out that our experience of, of uh, you know, the visual world is, you know, mediated by DMT. You know, so, you know, so would that mean, you know, uh, you know, that our experience of, you know, the visual world is constructed? In which case, you know, by who? And, you know, for what purpose? And, you know, why is it constructed, you know, in, in you know, this particular manner and, you know, not in another? You know, so it would open up this incredible can of worms. Yes, well, that's very interesting, Rick, because I think there is so much new research being done by a, a huge number of people around the world who would like to challenge that paradigm and to discuss, for example, um, spirituality with regard to science and maybe the idea of um, a created universe or a holographic universe or that kind of thing. And perhaps DMT opens the door a little bit to further discussion of just that kind of thing. Yeah, and, you know, earlier on you were wondering about the, you know, paradoxical, you know, notion behind the phrase spirit molecule. Yeah. Um, Yeah, you know, uh, I, you know, had a conversation with an Orthodox rabbi in Taos where I used to live, Taos, New Mexico, um, and, you know, we were talking about what, you know, DMT might be. Um, and uh, he started to, you know, kind of riff on the idea of the most spiritual of the physical or the most, you know, physical of the spiritual, mm-hmm. you know, some kind of liminal object, um, you know, kind of, you know, you know, kind of between the worlds, you know, kind of mediating between the worlds. You know, so DMT, you know, could be, you know, one of those liminal compounds that, uh you know, kind of uh, is providing a bridge between uh, the, the spiritual and the physical. And I think there's no doubt that uh, certainly the pineal gland appears all over the world, I suppose hidden in plain sight, whether it's hidden or not is open to debate, but the image of the pine cone has always been, I suppose, revered by ancient people, and you'd see it a lot in occult iconography, certainly around places like the Vatican and holy sites. Quite often buildings would be crowned or topped with an image of the uh, the pineal gland or the pine cone. Um, so could it be that there is a hidden knowledge that certain people are privy to and have tried to either keep hidden or it just hasn't permeated into the public consciousness or the mainstream consciousness? Yeah, well, I'm just not sure, actually. Um, you know, in order to establish, you know, that the pineal gland is a spiritual organ, you would need some evidence. Um, yeah. You know, so I suppose... Yeah, I'm, you know, and I'm not certain what kind of evidence either the Vatican or the Masons or, you know, some of these, uh, you know, these institutions have got. Uh, you know, um, I suppose if you took out pineal glands and you smoked them, <laughs> you know, God forbid, uh, <laughs> and you experienced, you know, some kind of altered state, um, I suppose, you know, that would be evidence. Um, in, in the meantime, though, you know, some colleagues... In uh, in in uh, the Midwest are actually, um, you know, they're focusing, uh, you know, I'm on you know looking you know for DMT in the rodent pineal, so I think within a few months you know we're actually going to have some information uh, you know regarding if the pineal makes DMT or not, uh, you know, um, and even if the pineal gland you know doesn't make DMT, um, there's still is quite a bit, you know, that's made on a routine basis by the lungs. Mm. You know, you know, the lungs are always making DMT. Um, and also, oh, actually, you know, one more thing about the pineal is, you know, um, that group in Wisconsin that's been, you know, looking at the gene and the enzyme 
responsible for DMT synthesis. Um, you know, they've, uh, you know, determined, uh, you know, that the pineal gland is active uh, in, you know, those regards. So I think it's, you know, it, it is going to turn out that the pineal makes DMT. You know, but still, you know, there are, you know, people without pineal glands, um, either from cancer or from strokes, those kinds of things. And, you know, they seem normal. They dream. Uh, you know, so there are, you know, other sources of DMT which are more reliable, more consistent perhaps. Um, and, and uh, you know, so the main organ of interest is uh, the lung uh, in that regard. Um, and, you know, you would wonder, well, can DMT, you know, make it into the brain from the lung? And it's of, you know, it's of interest, you know, that DMT is actively transported in, into the brain uh, 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 using energy uh, that the brain expends in order, you know, to get it across the blood-brain barrier. Okay. And, and, you know, so there's only a small number of compounds that the brain does that to, and those compounds are required for brain function or, you know, for normal brain function. So, you know, uh, um, you know consistent with, you know, on the enzyme and the gene in the retina, you know, it uh, you know could be that DMT is involved in everyday, uh, you know, perceptual you know homeostasis, and you know that's the reason it's uh, you know taken into the confines of the brain like that. I also find it interesting, just as you speak, um, the fact that you mention the lungs and DMT because. A lot of Eastern practices focus so much on breathing, especially when it comes to trance-like states or altered states of consciousness. I wonder, is there any kind of link there, perhaps? Uh, well, there could be. And, you know, uh, you know, some of those, you know, breathing exercises um, involve, you know, prolonged holding of the breath. And, and, you know, and obviously, you know, one of the you know, things that occurs um, at uh, the time of death is you stop breathing. You know, you know, so it, you know, could be the hypoxia, you know, it, you know, it, you know, it, you know, could increase the amounts of, you know, DMT in the bloodstream, um, you know, and even if the heart's not beating, it could still diffuse, uh, you know, through the circulatory system. And there's another concept that interests me a lot, Rick, and that's, um, obviously we know that DMT is present in other plants and animals, of course. What do you think maybe of DMT as being potentially a universal language or if people are in an altered state brought on by DMT and they're interacting with other entities or beings without the use of language as we know it, could it be that DMT is a pathway to communicate with, uh, I suppose, an intraspecies pathway or in a sense? Yeah, well, you know, I've, I've well, um, so I've, you know, considered, you know, DMT to be some kind of spiritual Esperanto, as it were, uh, 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 you know, providing a, you know, nonverbal, you know, way, you know, for um, species or, you know, individuals within the species or across species, I mean, you know, to communicate with each other, mm. uh, you know, you know, visually, uh, intuitively, those kinds of things. And, you know, that's obviously, you know, within the realm of gross speculation, but, 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 uh, you know, still, it is a, you know, consciousness-related compound, you know, which exists in plants and other animals, um, as well as humans, you know, so it would, you know, make sense, uh, you know, that it could, you know, provide a bridge, as it were, for uh, establishing communication. So what of the concept of prophecy, because I know you've looked at this in great detail, particularly with regard to the Old Testament and the characters and the stories that we find there? Yeah, well, that's the book I'm working on right now. I, well, uh, I've also, you know, I, and I, you know, began, you know, working on it quite a few years ago. But you know, hopefully, uh, I'll be able, to, you know, to wrap it up this spring. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, there were a couple of things which um, I was left with when my study ended in 1995. Um, you know, one of those is that I was not quite convinced at, you know, the time that there was a spiritual level of reality. Um, I was, you know, more thinking it was a construct of the mind uh, or projection or some kind of psychological process. Mm -hmm. um, and it was only after my study was over and I had time to think about it that I actually, you know, came to my own conclusion that there is a spiritual, you know, level of reality. It's, it's external to us. Um, you know, we can tap into it, uh, you know, but it isn't, you know, uh, you know solely a a creation of our own minds. 
you, you know, obviously it's, you know, perceived through our minds and our perceptions are colored, you know, as a result of our own psychology and our own constitution, but uh, still it is the perception of an external thing. Um, and, and, you know, so that kind of clashed with, you know, my Buddhist, uh, you know, background. I, I had a number of decades of Buddhist, you know, practice and study. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they regard these kinds of visions as, you know, purely products of the mind and obstacles, you know, to the enlightened state. You know, so, you know, the kinds of stories that my volunteers were, you know, telling me is, you know, they weren't projections of their mind, they weren't dreams, they, they weren't hallucinations. You know, they were more real than real. Um, and at the same time, you know, it was an interactional experience. You know, they related uh, to the contents of their visions as opposed, you know, to the unitive, ego-dissolving, concept-less free, you know, concept-free, image-free, you know, kinds of experiences that, you know, one, you know, might expect, you know, uh, you know, from the version of Buddhist enlightenment uh, within the Zen tradition, which is the one I was trained in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so I, I, you know, began, you know, looking, you know, for other traditions or other spiritual systems which could explain the external freestanding nature of the spiritual world and at, uh, you know, the same time qualified it w- within an interactive, you know, kind of framework. Um, and I'm Jewish, uh, so I started reading the Bible, and uh, after a while the whole, you know, notion started to appear to me of a prophetic state of consciousness which, uh, you know, resembled to a large extent the experiences of my D&T volunteers. And, you know, by the prophetic state, I'm not speaking only of, you know, foretelling the future or of prediction, but, uh, um, you know, simply any state of, of, you know, seeing things and hearing things that other people don't. Um, and, you know, with that kind of a you know, broad definition, um, you know, there are a huge number of examples of, you know, prophetic experience in in uh, the Bible, not only, you know, the ones that we have learned to, you know, kind of connect to, you know, the classical prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and yeah. Ezekiel. Um, you know, so I've been, uh, well, you know, so this, you, uh, you know, so this current, you know, book project, uh, I've, you know, been comparing descriptions of my DMT volunteers with descriptions of, you know, personages in the Bible who have, you know, seen things and heard things, you know, that weren't there or, you know, that, you know, that other people couldn't, um, or, you know, that they, you know, weren't able to perceive normally. Um, and there are striking resemblances. And so, uh, I'm going to be proposing that, uh, you know, perhaps, you know, um, you know, the prophetic state as described in the Hebrew Bible is, is you know to a you know to um, you know, some extent uh, explainable through the ages of endogenous DMT release. You know, so that would then you know kind of put you know the Bible into uh, the category of a uh, uh, you know a uh, you know psychedelically tinged or flavored text. You know, to the extent of you know prophetic state and and you know the DMT and uh, the DMT state resemble each other, and you know to the extent of you know that the Bible is a prophetic text, you know you know then you could kind of you know make the conclusion you know that the Bible is a uh, you know is a you know psychedelic text you know to the extent that you know the two states resemble each other, um, and and you know one of the advantages um, of you know that model is it uh, is a lot more articulate and, you know, deep when it comes to the message uh, of the spiritual experience, which is, um, well, you know, to the extent that it resembles, you know, the psychedelic one. You know, one of the, you know, one of the, you know, things which occurred in my study is, you know, that the volunteers, you know, just didn't have the vocabulary you know, to ask questions in that state, okay. or or you know, to come back and describe the state, or to be able to, um, you know, know what they were looking for, or you know, or or you know, to recognize, you know, what it was that they saw, and you know, the Bible is quite you know good in in uh, that respect. Um, it's got a huge vocabulary. Um, it's you know got a extremely well articulated message. Um, 
and uh, it's a you know Western text as well. You know, so, you know, so the images and the and the concepts and the terms are all you know kind of uh, quite well diffused within you know Western civilization. And another theme that runs through the Bible, of course, is the. Uh the theme of duality, positive and negative experience, uh, both with regard to prophecy and otherwise. Was uh, that the experience of your study as well, positive and negative experience on behalf of the participants? Yeah, you know, I screened my volunteers real carefully, but, you know, nevertheless, you know, there were some adverse effects. You know, some people, you know, panicked. You know, some, you know, even developed, you know, panic attacks of a short-lived nature after their participation you know, a couple of people got depressed, you know, briefly for a few months after being mm-hmm. in the study. Um, you know, so even with really screening people carefully, you know, there were still, you know, some adverse effects. And, you know, uh, you know, some of the acute effects were quite horrifying. You know, one of the study participants experienced a, you know, vision of being anally, you know, raped by crocodiles. Um, you know, wow. that was a horrifying thing for sure. And, uh, you know, somebody else was confronted by an African, you know, war goddess who, you know, was quite threatening, quite belligerent, and, you know, scared him half to death. So, um, yeah, yeah, you know, so there is, uh, you know, uh, you know, these are quite uh, intense and extremely profound states, and you need to be prepared. Um, you, you know, um, uh, you need to have some, you know, tools in 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 your toolkit to be able to contend with, uh, you know, some of the extreme kinds of things that uh, you encounter. And did some of those experiences then resonate in the following weeks and months with people, or by and large, was it something that people were able to compartmentalize and see as an altered state that only happened for that kind of 25, 30 minutes? Or what, what way did people react afterwards in the, in the medium term, I suppose? Yeah, um... Well, well, by medium term, you mean like over the, uh, you know, following, you know, months or the following years? I suppose months as opposed to years. Uh, yeah, well, with, yeah, I'm um, over the space of, you know, like, the, well, um, you know, so the months after, you know, somebody was in a study, uh, you know, they were affected. Uh, they were um you know, the majority, anyway, were struggling to, you know, make sense and understand, you know, w- w- uh, you know what had happened to them. Mm. Um, and it was interesting, a, uh, a spontaneously developing, you know, DMT support group, uh, you know, came about, uh, you know, because people, uh, you know, were so, uh, you know, impressed with their uh, experiences, but, you know, weren't able to really discuss uh, you know them with anybody, even their you know family members, because they were so unusual, so extreme, you know, so out of the ordinary, you know. So a group of the DMT volunteers got together and started, you know, to meet regularly, you know, to compare notes, uh, and and you know, uh, and you know, to start you know discussing the, uh, in, you know, the impact uh, of their participation. Uh, you know, as I concluded the book, I overall you know, kind of considered the study, you know, to be kind of a wash when it came to positive versus, you know, negative effects. But, um, you know, as I, I don't think I actually, uh, you know, gave the uh, study enough time to sink in or, you know, to integrate itself uh, into the volunteers. You know, if you watch the DMT movie, um, which, you know, came out last fall, um, it's astonishing, you know, to consider... The, you know, that the volunteers who are speaking in that film, uh, you know, they had their experiences 10, 12, you know, 15 years before those interviews. You know, so if if you're listening to them carefully, it, you know, sounds like they're discussing something that just happened a couple days ago. Yeah. Uh, but on the contrary, you know, it was, you know, up to 10, 12, you know, 15 years, uh, you know, from the date of their being in the study. Um and, you know, the, on the volunteers I interviewed anyway, uh, you know, for the film, uh, you know, they, as a rule, described their participation as quite life-changing. Uh, but, you know, it required, um, a, uh, it required a much longer time span 
of you know to integrate you know those effects uh, you know than just a few months or even just a few years. And did your own curiosity ever get the better of you, Rick, with regard to actually um, experimenting on your, on yourself? No, no, um, I couldn't. Well, you know, I was obviously curious, but yeah, I just couldn't, you know, because FDA wouldn't allow that. Well, you know, Tim Leary, you know, kind of ruined that for everybody because of his, <laughs> yeah. you know, self-experimentation. You know, in uh, the European, you know, research, uh, you know, community, you have to go first as, you know, the researcher. That's right, yeah. You know, in order to establish safety and to be able to give informed consent to your volunteers mm-hmm. or, you know, to describe the effects, you know, to help with the informed consent process. Yeah, you know, in American studies, though, you just can't, you know, take your own drugs at this point. I see. And before we wrap things up for today, your Old Testament concept of prophecy is like an alternative model to some of the more established or more familiar ones. Um, one of them being of particular interest to me is Latin American shamanism. You've already spoken about Buddhism and some of the Eastern religious systems. Would the DMT experience be linked possibly, in your opinion, Rick, to maybe the use of ayahuasca or, or, or some of the substances that the South American Indians have used from when records began that we know of? Right. Yeah, um, well, so it is the case, you know, that ayahuasca, you know, which contains orally active DMT because there's a plant combined with a DMT one which inhibits, you know, the enzyme that breaks down the DMT orally. Okay. Um, yeah, ayahuasca has been used, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, for 2,000 years, um, it, you know, seems to be the case. Um, but, you know, it's, you know, it is in a way, you know, comparable, you know, to Buddhism. Um, you know, it isn't a, you know, Western, uh, you know, civilization, you know, uh, kind of tradition. You know, the vocabulary is not there. You know, we aren't jungle dwellers. Um, you know, um, at least most of us aren't. Um, <laughs> you know, so there's a, you know, cultural, you know, dissonance, you know, between the shamanic culture or, you know, the East Asian culture of, you know, of, uh, you know, of Buddhism, mm. uh, it, you know, with respect you know, to fully being able to be embraced, you know, by the Western, uh, you know, post-industrial mind. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's, you know, one of the beauties of the Bible um, as a psychedelic text. You know, one of the things, too, about shamanism, um, at least, you know, the brand coming in from Latin America, is, you know, it isn't oriented, you know, towards God. And I think, you know, for lots of people, that's a stumbling block. You know, it is oriented towards this, you know, the spiritual world, um, you know, they do, uh, you know, promote or speak about an externally freestanding spiritual universe, and it's inhabited, you know, can be used and interacted with, you know, but there isn't, you know, much of an emphasis on God at all. And also, you know, the shamanism that I've encountered over the years, uh, it's a bit of a, you know, free-for-all, every man for himself. Mm. You know, there's, you know, lots of, you know, sh- uh, you know self-promotion, and, you know, obviously, you know, that occurs you know, within the major, uh, 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 you know, Western religions, you know, but there, you know, there seems to be a, a complete, you know, lack of, you know, peer review, uh, you know, within the shamanic culture. And, um, you know, there's, you know, there's quite a bit of, um, you know, spiritual warfare, black magic, those kinds of things that go on uh, in, you know, kind of an uncontrolled, you know, manner. You know, that's not to say, you know, that it can't improve, as it were, or, you know, that the West is innocent of the same, uh, you know, crimes. But uh, still, I think, uh, you know, there you know, there needs to be, you know, some kind of ethical and moral overlay on, you know, shamanism, uh, and also the incorporation of a vocabulary, you know, that Western religious people can relate to better than you know, they've been doing so far. Mm, and I suppose the notion of prophecy then does deal directly with the ethical and moral concerns, which is uh, a big positive, I suppose. Yeah, you know, the, you know, the main, well, you know, there's a number of specific messages, you know, within the prophetic one. Uh, and, you know, and, uh, you know, so one of them is uh, the importance of ethical and, you know, moral, um, you know, cause and effect, as it were. Well, the golden rule, for example, uh, you know, some, you know, philosophers, you know, don't think, you know, that, you know, that one, uh, you know, could, uh, you know, come up with a golden rule without, um, you know, without the experience of, you know, revelation. Yeah. Uh, you know, so uh, if, if you know, the prophetic state is a, you know, psychedelic state, uh, and if, you know, revelation is, you know, kind of the para, you know, digmatic, you know, prophetic experience, 
you know, it uh, you know could be uh, you know that the psychedelics could help us begin to you know to understand and to probe uh, you know the biological you know bases of ethics and of morals. Well, it's utterly fascinating. Um, for those, and I'm sure there will be many who would like to check out more. Tell us about the books, the website, how people can get their hands on more of your information, Rick. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, you know, so my website is rickstrassman.com, R-I-C-K-S-T-R-A-S-S-M-A-N. And uh, there's information about, you know, the, uh, the book, you know, the DMT book and uh, the follow-up, you know, book of that, which, you know, discusses at greater length, you know, the entity contact experience. Um, and I hope to complete the prophecy book, you know, by the spring. So hopefully it'll, it'll you know, be out in, in uh, the summer. Uh, and, you know, the documentary is called The Spirit Molecule, you know, named after the book. And uh, you can, uh, you know, get more inf- information about that at thespiritmolecule.com. Um, and uh, you can buy it and you can download it and you can stream the documentary from iTunes and Amazon, you know, Netflix, um, all of, you know, the usual suspects. And it all comes uh, highly recommended, I must say, Rick. Um, we're very much looking forward to the book. We can expect that when in the spring of 2013, yeah? Uh, well, you know, I've been working pretty steadily on it, so I think it'll be completed by the spring, in which case it'll come out in the summer. Fantastic. Well, we'll check in with you once that does come out, because I'd be very keen to have another chat with you in depth. It's been absolutely fascinating speaking to you today on Alchemy Radio. Rick Strassman, thank you for joining me. Well, thanks very much, John. It's my pleasure. Alchemy Radio. Alchemy Radio.